Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Economist. From London, this is The Economist. I'm Fiametta Rocco, the Books and Arts Editor, and with me today is one of my colleagues, Paul Wallace, the European Economics Editor, to talk about his new book, The Euro Experiment. Paul, you've been covering the economies and public finances of the European Union for a long time. Why did you choose this particular moment to bring out a book? Writing about the euro crisis in, in, as a book was extremely difficult during the thick of it, in the acute phase of it in 2010, 2011, 2012. But really following Mario Draghi's Do Whatever It Takes pledge in July 2012, things began to die down and it appeared as if things had been resolved. And so it seemed a good time to take stock. The euro crisis was extensively covered in the press, but naturally... The coverage was often very confusing because events were very confusing. This was a a set of events occurring at multiple levels within Europe. They were affecting banks, public finances. On any one day, there could be stories about all these things. And so really, a book gives you the opportunity to step back, put things in perspective and try to give a rounded account of what's happened. You have a very distinctive approach to the interpretation of the euro crisis. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, it's more a sort of encapsulation of several themes which run through the euro crisis. So, uh, you know, in the middle of the euro crisis, it had become clear that it was more than a sovereign debt crisis, which was the first way in which it was delineated. It was clearly also a banking crisis. There was also a massive macroeconomic crisis on the periphery of the euro area where those countries had run up very big current account deficits, had lost competitiveness to a great extent. Uh, But also, uh, perhaps less well acknowledged, it was also a private debt crisis. It was perhaps most fundamentally of all a crisis of political economy as the defective institutions of the euro were exposed. And then precisely because of those defective institutions, it became a political crisis with national leaders vying with one another, most notably, obviously, in the standoff between Germany and Greece. You and I remember how we had so many editorial meetings about the complexities of the euro crisis as it was emerging. How do you deal with that in your book? I tried to avoid what is the the snare, the trap, which is some sort of chronological narrative account, because that's just too confusing. So I tried to step back from that to analyse it, to set out, for example, in one chapter, you know, the, the, the various defects of the design which were exposed during the crisis. I look at, in, in another chapter, at the various facets that meant that in some respects this was a continuation of the global financial crisis as it took on a sort of new lease of life. I tried to explain 
how and why it was that this crisis became so existential, so that problems in one relatively small area, for example, Greece, you know, about 2% of the overall output of this currency union, how, how those difficulties could, in fact, potentially bring the whole project down with catastrophic consequences and look at structural reforms, which is one of the sort of main measures taken in response. So it's an attempt to analyse with quite a lot of historical perspective the various facets of the crisis and to assess the reforms and put it in that sort of perspective. Well, the Greek crisis this year happened while you were right in the middle of writing the book. You hadn't finished yet, although you'd got a long way through. Was that a bit of a headache? Well, it was clearly a headache because, for one thing, I was also covering it for the for the newspaper. Uh, but in another respect, it actually simply illustrated one of my main themes, which was that because of the defects in the design, this created the framework in which you could get this extraordinary standoff between the Germans and the Greeks. And and this illustrated the political risk that the whole project was prone to, is prone to, and remains prone to, because although, you know, now uh, the Greek crisis appears to have calmed down, I think the position there remains precarious, and the whole project remains still very vulnerable to political pressures. Paul, you've called your book The Euro Experiment. Clearly, that's a title that's been very carefully chosen. Why did you pick that one? The defining characteristic of the euro is that it's a monetary union, it's a currency union, It has its own independent central bank. That's extremely important. But it isn't part of a broader fiscal and political union. There are attempts to create fiscal constraints within the euro area, but they're very weak. And that's the experiment. And it was recognised as such at the beginning. And in a sense, it was a victory for those. There'd been a long battle going on, actually, to the 1970s as to whether you could create a single currency, whether it would require a prior fiscal and economic union, or whether you could start with a monetary union. And the interesting thing about it is it worked for 10 years. And all the sceptics were confounded. And the European Central Bank established itself. It never was short of critics, but it was extremely successful in the grand scheme of things. And then the financial crisis started. And then that started to raise questions about the viability of the euro area. And that, in a sense, was when the the full nature and the full audacity of the experiment became clear. Well, it's clearly an experiment that's still ongoing. Is it too soon to have a final verdict on it? It it probably is. I mean, the interesting thing is that, you know, if you looked at it more or less a decade after it had started, you'd say, well, this has been pretty successful, you know, growth in living standards have been broadly similar to that of, of America. But now we look at it from a longer perspective, 15 to 16 years on, I mean, the economic performance has been desperately poor in the last seven, eight years. Uh, output in the euro area is still amazingly below the level that it reached in early 2008. Italians are worse off in living standards than they were before it began. But Despite all this, the extraordinary thing is it's stuck together. It's survived and, in fact, it's, it's expanded, it's had new members. And that tells you something quite important about it. But, again, you know, there is a question about the political pressures which still remain strong and which, which still mean that it could be vulnerable. Your own personal view, after all this, 
do you think the euro can really come back from its crisis? My own personal view, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, this, in a sense, you know, we, we see a central bank which is in a hurry to try to get things, to get growth in the euro area. And I think they're in a hurry because they do feel although they wouldn't necessarily admit this in public, but I think they do feel that, you know, if it doesn't prove itself to work in terms of delivering prosperity, then at some stage people will say, well, actually, you know, we would be better off outside it. But what was illustrated in the crisis is that although that might be the case, if you could get over the the business of getting out without a lot of, of damage, that process of trying to disentangle yourself from the euro area is potentially extremely damaging. And that, of course, is why ultimately Cyprus withdrew from the conflict with the rest of the euro area and basically uh, caved in. Paul, thank you. That was our European economics editor, Paul Wallace, talking to me about his new book, The Euro Experiment, which is published by the Cambridge University Press. From London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.